Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm really happy to bring you this one. I talked with Professor Talia Mayo, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mathematics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Professor Mayo is a computational mathematician working in the area of hydrodynamic models for coastal hazards and specifically in hurricane storm surge models and climate change impacts on coastal flood risk. As part of that, she also works in data assimilation methods and data assimilation is where you use observations to constrain or improve your numerical representation of the ocean in some way. Uh, a big theme of her work is understanding what storm surge is going to look like with climate change, and we talk about that a good bit. Honestly, I had a blast. I am really, really happy that Professor Mayo agreed to appear on the podcast. We talked about her research in the first half, her pathway into science in the second half, and for me, this is like a classic climate scientist. This is like what I had in mind when I started this podcast was like this kind of conversation. It's just right. I really like it. Uh, and we spent the first few minutes, there's, you might hear a few sounds with an upset toddler in the background. There was a toddler who was around, uh, and you will hear a small visitor in the first few minutes of the podcast, but it, that's fine. We included that on purpose because that's what working from home life is actually like. That's what happens sometimes. You sometimes, uh, there's a small visitor who makes noise and that's fine. You, gotta, you have to roll with it. You have to go with this stuff, right? That's just, uh, just what it is. So you can find Professor Mayo at taliamayo.com, and you can find her on Twitter at taliamayo. So yeah, let's just go ahead. Let's get into it. I really am happy to bring this to you. So uh, let's talk to Professor Talia Mayo. Here we go. I'm sorry. It's okay. Don't <laughs> course, worry. You know, they schedule their tantrums for right before it matters. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having a toddler for sure. Mine's eight now. Going to be nine. Short, very shortly. Very soon. But I remember. Okay. Does this have a mic? I can hear you. So, yeah. Is it can the same or better or? It's this, It's pretty similar. Okay. I think they're going to leave. So let me just give her to her dad. <laughs> okay. 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 He's going to take them outside. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, thank, thank you for being flexible. I don't want us to stress out too much. I mean, a little bit of noise in the background is not the end of the world. You know, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I'll let him, I'll let him try to calm him down. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like you said, really, I mean, there's not a lot you can do, you know, like a toddler gets tired, they get tired. They're going to let you know about it. Um, <laughs> it's hot, right? It's, I'm sure it's already pretty warm there. Or is it okay at the moment or? Yeah, it's, 
it's not too bad. I think it's been a little bit cooler this week, maybe because of the storm. Oh, that's good. Oh, right. Yeah. There was the storm that passed like kind of coastally nearby. Yeah. It didn't really like make landfall there, but it passed right. coastally nearby. Yeah. Um, did you see any any effects from that other than just a bit of cooling or was there any? I don't, yeah, I just noticed it was cool the next day. So it did rain, but I'm not sure if it was the storm or just something else, but it yeah. was cooler for a day or two and it's still been cool. Yeah. What have you been up to today? Today, um, I have been reading a little bit, um, reading about writing. <laughs> yeah, reading about writing. Oh, yeah. first, but let me let me say, um, to, I should make sure I say this up top. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm glad you're here. So thanks for taking some time out and for making some space to have a conversation. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. Your work sounds really interesting and it's, it's so I'm kind of from more of the, I come from more of an open ocean kind of oceanography background. And so to me, like, you know, modeling actual kind of storm surges or thinking about the hydrodynamics is like a cool boundary that like I don't get to talk about very often. So I'm excited to learn a bit more about that from you. Um, <laughs> and there's other, we also sometimes uh, or often rather talk about kind of people's pathway into science and kind of how they ended up. And that, that tends to happen more in the second, you know, half of it, but there's not really like a rigid structure. That's just often kind of how it, how it falls out. So okay. I just wanted to make sure I said that up top, but so you've been reading about writing. Yeah. About like, <laughs> like um, scientific uh, writing, paper yeah, writing. Scientific writing. I'm just trying to, I mean, I usually use the summers to try to, you know, write up stuff um, mm. when I don't have to teach. So I was, I mean, I'm pretty close. We submitted something recently and then I'm pretty close to wrapping up a second thing, just trying to get, you know, more feedback um, on how to structure. So, yeah. That's what the, the reading is about, like structuring the paper, like how to make. Yeah. The... Or just like, what, what do you make sure that you cover in your introduction or right? How do you mm -hmm. introduce your work? So, so that's the part I'm, I usually do introductions last. <laughs> um, so yeah, trying to figure out what's the best way to open. Yeah. I never know how long to make the introduction either. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Cause you'd see some papers and they have a, like a volume right up front of here's yeah. the entire history of the field and there's right. you know, 60 citations and, you know, and yeah, the introduction exactly. and like, like, do I go that far or do I just say, well, here's some basic background and, sure. you know, so I'm not sure. Um, so what, where are you landing on the introduction or what, any interesting thoughts on, is, yeah, is the book helpful? This one, this one is taking me longer than <laughs> the last one I wrote. I do think this is probably the hardest section to write. Um, so yeah, right now I'm just trying to like survey similar or literature that's kind of covered the topic, which is storm surge in the Northeast. Mm. Um, and then I know, I think probably most of my problem is that it can change. And then I sometimes write as if it can't change. So like, I'm trying to make this plan, but right now I'm just trying to review stuff and then write it up and then get rid of what doesn't really go you say that like it can't change you you write are you saying you write as if you kind of want to get it down the first time and then yeah. just kind of be done with it I can yeah. relate to that I know that like people who advise about writing tell you not to write that way but I, yeah. I have that tendency too where yeah. for whatever reason 
I just would really like to just get it done and then be like, oh, good, that's it. I can, yeah. I can walk away. But I mean, it. It's, yeah, it's really, it's not a good habit. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? We, we keep it trying it apparently, but well. like, <laughs> take, take longer, but yeah. hopefully, I don't know. I do a little bit better under pressure and there, hmm. I think that's part of the problem too. I need, I need a different kind of deadline, but hmm. yeah, we'll see. Um, do you have like self-imposed deadlines? Is that... Not really. I mean, we recently submitted something that did have a deadline, and then I saw how much could be done very quickly. (laughs) You have to. So I don't know. I need to only submit papers with deadlines. Like special collections or something, or where it has to be coordinated with other people or something like that. Do you want to talk about either of the papers? Uh, We can, or we can talk about other things in, you know, more general things or, you know, it's, it's kind of your call if you want to, you know, different people have different tastes in terms of when they like to talk about their, their work, about specific bits of work anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess the general theme um, that I've been working on is just understanding what storm surge is going to look like with climate change. Um, so both papers, so the one that we just submitted and then the one that's coming are about that and kind of two different approaches to looking at that. Um, so one, well, both downscale global climate model data, um, but one does then also uses a hurricane model um, to kind of determine probabilistic storms. So we're not actually simulating um, actual storms. We're just Mm. simulating like synthetic storms and then using what we understand about frequency of events and whatnot to understand like what's the risk. So we get like an entire distribution of surge and we can look at uh, maximum storm surge levels and then say something about what's the likelihood of having a storm of this height in this place. Um, and then the other approach is more deterministic, where we have a storm that's already happened, and then we impose a climate change signal um, on the atmospheric portion of the simulation and then force our storm surge model with that. So then we can compare, here's the storm in present-day climate, here's the storm in um, 100 years, and how did it change? Mind if we back up to the down, downscaling part? So you mentioned yeah, uh, downscaling climate models. And that's something on this podcast we've talked with um, Rachel McCrary. Uh, she uh, works out at, at NCAR doing um, and downscaling as part of what she looks at from a um, hydrology kind of standpoint. So uh, my understanding of it, and you can tell me if this is kind of how it's done in your area, or not is that so you take the output from climate models which are kind of coarse you know the grid cells where you have information they're way bigger than like an individual city so you need some way to take that large scale information and figure out well how do i apply it to smaller scales like individual cities or individual parts of a state for example Um, and so my understanding is the way you do that is you have you might have like individual weather station data that you can use to adjust that big climate scale projection you have like smaller scale information from the the um, weather station data that you then use to do the downscaling is that sort of the approach you're talking about or you do you mean a different kind of yeah so i mean i do mean using mo- or data from the gcn from the global climate models yeah. and this isn't actually the part of the work that i do right, um, okay. but like for the latest work we did then that uh, large scale data goes into a regional climate model so it'll supply like 
boundary conditions for a more local model. And then you can do with that what you need to. So it's kind of like, you know, translating um, in some way, but usually through boundary conditions. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So the, what I just described, I think is called statistical downscaling where you're, you're not necessarily driving a physical model you're doing like a statistical combination of large scale and small scale information. But then the other kind of downscaling that you're talking about, um, I I forget what Rachel called it, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of more familiar with it because in oceanography, we do this all the time, right? We have regional models that you force with the boundary conditions of some other model. And that's a kind of downscaling. Yeah. More like nesting or something. Yeah. A kind of nesting approach. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you've got large-scale climate information. You're using that as boundary conditions for your regional model, right? And the regional model, are are you talking about one of the kind of shallow water type models that you, I read a little bit on your website about that that's, that's often the kind of t- shallow water tool that you use to do the storm surge prediction. Yeah, so, sorry, go yeah. ahead. So, so our storm surge models just take uh, like wind, uh, wind stress or wind and pressure fields as inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the latest work we did, then the global climate model data goes into regional um, weather models, so WORF, um, and that yeah. colleague is also at NCAR. Um, mm-hmm. And so then they're using uh, that information to make WORF simulations. And then from those WORF simulations, we take the wind and the pressure information and convert it into a format that our surge model reads. Okay. Cool. Um, so it's kind of like a few steps in between. Um, yeah, and I think you know, at AdCERC, the surge model that I work with the most doesn't use it doesn't simulate the atmosphere. It uses information from the atmosphere as like an input. Yeah. So it's kind of an ocean only model or exactly. ocean and ocean and land. Yeah. That's that's a lot of what I do too, just on just on large scales. So it's an ocean only model. It's got the the um yeah like the forcing is atmospheric forcing some representation of atmospheric forcing and that is your that is your atmosphere yeah um, mm. yeah cool. cool so do you i imagine there are other bits like when you say it's a shallow water model um and i you can tell me if i'm wrong but is it missing bits like it like inundation like the water actually flooding onto the onto the land or do you have some representation of like the land interacting with kind of water sloshing up onto it? Um, yeah, or- so that kind of, it depends. Um, for the, so it's called a mesh, I don't know what other fields call their grids, but the numerical grid that we use, we call meshes. Um, and so mesh development isn't something that I do. I usually mm-hmm. use meshes that have been developed by other people. But if the mesh extends inland, then you can simulate uh, flooding inland. And then there's um, algorithms where things are allowed to go from wet to dry and you can actually capture what's happening on land. So it just depends what mesh you have. Um, I would mm. say a lot of meshes don't extend inland. So it stops at the coastline, um, but there's a pretty big one and that's the one we used for the study we just did um, that does extend inland and it covers kind of the full coast of the US. Um, and so usually if people are really interested in a particular area, then they'll do mesh development and have inland simulation and even like rivers and whatnot there, and then specify what the flow can do based on boundary conditions. So if you have like a, 
hard stop at the coastline, then you'll put like, uh, you'll specify that in your boundary conditions. But if you just extend your mesh up, then you're allowing water to come inland. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that tends to be kind of what, I don't want to say people, but a lot of people who care about like applications for built environment are more interested in what's going to happen inland. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. So I think it just, it depends, but it definitely has the capability to do that. Yeah. Cause any, uh, any, you might've heard the neighbor's dog there a little bit. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's fine. That's modern, uh, lockdown life, isn't it? That's work, <laughs> work from home life. That's fine. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so in, I had a, a summer student project, like a master's project, excuse me, um, where we were trying to look in our little way at storm surge risk. Uh, but we were just using, oh, are you frozen? Are you still there? Oh, I'm still here. You're still here. Okay. So we were trying to look at storm surge risk um, and we were just using kind of ocean only output. So our super primitive way to even talk about that was to look at the sea surface height on the grid cells next to the land, right? Which mm-hmm. it sounds like, it sounds like that's, that's something one could do. It obviously isn't quite as satisfying to applications folks as if you can actually get the water, you know, wow. up onto the land interacting with the land. So I'm glad to hear that what we did wasn't totally like, you know, yeah, you know, like it wasn't, wasn't totally unreasonable. Like it's an okay first step. Uh, so that's good. We were applying some uh, machine learning methods to try to, uh, you know, figure out some of the factors that might affect storm storage risk. We were kind of just exploring things like well, local and remote wind stress, wind stress at different places in the coast and bathymetry. And it was a fun project to work on. Um, and, uh, it, I, I learned a lot and I hope to kind of continue learning more in that area. It's definitely not like my field and it, it probably won't be immediate, you know, in, in any short term time scale, but it's cool to learn more yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, what model do you use? So um, for my work, I'm using MIT GCM quite a lot. Okay. And that's, um, it's a general circulation model. So you can do the ocean only, or you can do atmosphere, or you can do a coupled model with it. Uh, I usually just do, ocean only kind of applications okay. uh, and you can do data data assimilation with it as well you can do state estimation which um, I know I saw on your website you do a bit of uh, data assimilation as well in your, mm-hmm. your storm surge risk models and that would be cool to, to talk about um, so maybe we, we could talk about about data assimilation or we could go back and talk a little bit more about climate change impacts on coastal flood risk? Because I guess we, we mentioned that you have these papers, but I'd be interested to know, are there kind of some headline statements about what you know you and your colleagues are kind of thinking about what, what will happen to storm surge risk under future climate yeah. scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I think probably as a lot of people suspect, <laughs> um, it's not good news that- Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess with the deterministic modeling we did, we're not doing anything to talk about frequency, Um, right? And so when you're not considering frequency, I mean, all of these events are low probability. So all we're really saying is that if the same exact storm happened in this different climate, the storm changes in a way that makes the surge worse. Um, And I think that's kind of like our overall finding. So the inundation extent increases, Um, that inundation volume increases for the same storms. Um, So maybe the hope is that the frequency decreases enough that, you know, hopefully you don't see that. Um, But I Mm. think 
in the literature, there's kind of a consensus that frequency of the intense storms will increase. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the biggest finding from the most recent study we did. Um, another study, uh, the one that we're working on, more or less says that your increase of flooding or your risk of flooding will increase with sea level rise. Um, but you're like from that risk that's caused by sea level rise, if you also consider changes in storm climatology, so changes to hurricane intensity and hurricane frequency, then that risk doubles. Um, so you see things, I forget the numbers, but at, let's say on average, like a 100 year flood might become a 14 year flood. Um, and then yeah. if you also include storm climatology, it becomes a seven year flood. Um, and there were, I mean, we're only looking in the Northeast, but I think that's probably the most important finding. So mm. I guess the point is like, you can't really just consider sea level rise when you're thinking about how your flood risk is going to change because flood risk is, or sea level rise is just kind of one component. Yeah. So on what time scale is that, um, uh, decrease from 100 year to seven year frequency, like how far into the climate change projections are you going to make the, so uh, end the, of the 100 years? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so end of the century. So by the time my kid is an old old person and your kids are old people, <laughs> this is the kind of time frame that we're, we're talking yeah. about. It's sort of striking to think about it in those terms sometimes. You're like, oh, right, sure. this is like when our kids are elderly, this is the, right. this is the feature we're talking about. Um, yeah, I heard someone talk about recently, they were talking about like voting rights or something. And they were like, oh, well, my mom at that time was 19 or something. And I was like, yeah, that's a good way to think about time. Because a lot of times we think of time like the 60s was so long ago. But if you think about like how old was your mother, then it becomes a lot more real, right? So yeah, that's right. So and the, the 90s was 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the 90s, the 60s were 30 years ago. It's the same time. But yeah. like, I'm going to guess because I think we're about the same age that like the distance, the time between the 90s and now didn't feel that long, really. Right. But yeah, it was the same time as, but the 60s felt like it was ancient history, you know, just like. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So that, um, yeah, I like that anchoring it to, you know, members of your family and how old sure. they were in different yeah. um hmm. yeah we've got a family <laughs> oh sorry i missed that what, what did you I say time just keeps going it does yeah yeah we've got a family member who so she wasn't alive during the last speaking of those kind of time anchors she wasn't alive during the last pandemic but her you know the um the spanish flu one but her mom definitely was. And so we asked her the other day, like, what do you remember? We, we asked, like, do you remember your mom talking about it at all? And, um, you know, she just uh, reported that it was also kind of a weird time, you know, just just strange. Uh, but yeah. we, we don't have to go down the pandemic route just yet. We can talk about it. <laughs> Let's talk well, about their crisis. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm hyped up today. I'm, I'm excited. So I'm a little bit all over the place. I'm going um, <laughs> to... I really like your job. I like your description on your website where you say, I'm a computational mathematician. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I could probably get away with describing myself that way because I don't do a lot okay. of like, I don't go to see a lot. You know, I'm just like, I'm doing data analysis and modeling yeah. and 
you know, some, some data, some state estimation data simulation stuff. So if I, I could probably get away with that to an extent. Yeah, I feel, I mean, we were, we wrote this article, um, this, so there's this innovator program at NCAR. And so that's uh, where we just submitted. So we were working with them on WARF. Uh, the program is kind of to connect faculty with scientists at NCAR. Um, and so there's nine of us faculty. Um, and so we were just, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, faculty in car. So there was yeah, this, what did you just say before that? We were talking about computational mathematician, the phrase oh, yeah, computational sorry. mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we wrote this article about, you know, interdisciplinary science. And so in it, we all described ourselves. And so it was so funny because probably the first, you know, there's nine of us that have to edit it. And probably the most edited part was that, like, what do you call yourself? Mm. Um, but I feel like computational mathematician is the best one because that's that's pretty much the degree that I have. Um, mm. But because I do this storm surge research, I think people might not realize that they, they might, you know, like I was sitting in a civil engineering department, I sat in two um, and then pretty much everything I talk about is storm surge. So you could miss that, but I don't like, I'm not really an engineer. Mm. I'm not really a oceanographer. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, it's easiest to just say that. And then I have like these applications. Yeah. And it, it matters a bit, right? Cause you want to give people a quick way into some, to give them some sense of what you do. So it matters picking that title. Cause yeah. you know, if you, I think you could get away with calling yourself a coastal oceanographer as well, but then right away people would think that you are talking oh, about nu nu nutrients and like you know, <laughs> yeah. fish and yeah. yeah. If you tell people you're you're an oceanographer, they they sometimes think you said marine biologist and yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about the data assimilation stuff? What do you um? How does that play into your into your modeling framework? Like, yeah, so I guess that has more to do with the computational math part. Um, so the program that I got my PhD from was not a department, it's an institute of computational science, basically. Yeah. Um, and so there, most people work on PDEs or finite element methods, um, and ABSERC is a finite element model. Does, sorry, do these things mean anything to you? They, they do, yeah. So, and basically... I, <laughs> I guess, I guess as the host, I should edit, editorialize just slightly yeah. for, for <laughs> listeners. Um, so in case, so a finite element model um, basically just breaks whatever you're trying to simulate into a bunch of individual grid cells. And uh, in, a, in a finite element model, I guess is a pretty general term for doing that, just breaking your domain up into individual pieces. Uh, yeah. And then sometimes those boxes are uniform in latitude and longitude, and sometimes they're more like Poly, polygon type shapes that are scattered all over the place with different sizes and shapes. And um, I'm, so when, when you say finite element methods, um, did you have more of that regular grid in mind or more of the polygons with different sizes, depending on, you know, like uh, how fine re of resolution you need in different parts of the, of the bay or whatever it is you're representing? Yeah, exactly. So I think the ADSERC model is finite element because it can do that you can use unstructured meshes or you yeah. can use irregular uh triangles they're all triangular but you don't have mm. to have a uniform grid um so i mean a lot of people in the institute at uta come from study finite element methods um so what you know how do you 
how do you optimize these methods? How do you implement these methods for different types of problems? Um, for me, I was kind of more interested in model development. So how can we how can we make the actual models better? Mm -hmm. um, and so my advisor had a project about data simulation, and that's how I started doing it. Um, and so the yeah, so if you have a model, you know that your model's not perfect. You may have some data, especially these days, um, but your data probably has error too. And so can you kind of mathematically combine both in a way that optimizes the best parts of, of each? Mm. Um, and so we've done kind of not uh, real-time application type things. We've more done like proof of concept. So showing that you could actually, if you had the right data, you could improve the error that comes from not having enough resolution. Um, and then for my thesis work, then I tried to see, so the advantage of these models is you, you don't really have to like go back and forth. You can do just a forward run and only update. You don't have to have kind of all of your simulation done and then go back and, and fix things like some right. of the other methods. That's, yeah, I, I, I use those methods, the slower methods, the 4D yeah. type method where yeah. you have to do a forward run and then you go backwards to calculate the sensitivities. And then that tells you how you need to change the initial conditions and the surface forcing. And then you run your model again. So it's very iterative and it's, it's slow. Right. Exactly. Um, you, you get nice closed budgets. And that's one of the reasons people still do it because you haven't like changed the interior of your solution at all. But are you referring to, is, it, is this the Kalman filter type methods? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my, my, PhD work was basically, can we use these methods that work for state estimation? Can we use it for something harder like parameter estimation? Mm, yeah. um, so we use that, use similar methods, um, variations of common filtering to back out what is bottom friction or just show the potential of the method to do that. Um, and so we can at least show it for kind of like a toy problem. That's awesome. Yeah. So working out things like bottom friction, things which would be really hard if not impossible to just measure directly and right. you know can you use them to estimate like mi mixing coefficients maybe too you know bottom yeah i mean and... i think anything anything hmm. that if your model is sensitive to it then potentially it can work with this form of data assimilation so that yeah. if the if the model will change if that coefficient or parameter changes then hmm. it's likely that you can use the method to figure out what's the parameter underneath What's the name of that institute? Is it at UT UT Austin? Yeah, so it's it's now called the Odin Institute. Right. Okay. Yeah, I know there's a a big uh, a big person in our field, uh, Patrick Heimbach, who's taken up a he's he's a professor there now and has been for a couple of years, not super long. Okay. He he moved not too long ago, but yeah. everything you're describing, this is like his bread and butter. You know, this yeah. is for Divar building state estimates and how do you use them? So. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to, you know, I, I definitely uh, make big use of the, the work that he's done and the advances mm -hmm. that he's pushed forward. Um, he is, he, I'm smiling because I'm remembering, he wrote a paper about um, the sensitivity of, gosh, I can't remember the objective function or the quantity of interest, but it was sensitivities of something to bathymetry. So he okay. was showing like where in the ocean you know, if you change bathymetry, here's how you would change some aspect of ocean circulation, yeah. which I thought yeah. was cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I you think can, that's what I like about modeling is you can kind of like see what if. Yeah. 
What if we just flattened this island and just yeah. remind <laughs> what, how would that change ocean circulation? Yeah, a, a colleague and friend of mine l- l- likes to do these models where he, you know, moves Australia around and moves Tans- Tasmania around and like, you know, closes off different parts of the ocean at different times to see what happens to the circulation. So yeah. it, it's a it's a, a mathematical playground and I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's cool. So that was your, your PhD work. Yeah. And then... Um, so I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead too far in terms of the if we want to talk about your pathway and things. Um, and, and I noticed you, you mentioned this other model slosh that's used yeah. by the National Weather Service. Yeah. Can you tell me about slosh a little bit? Um, so I haven't worked with it as much, but I use it for the probabilistic modeling that I did in my postdoc. So I was talking about um, you know how we were finding that the importance of the storm climatology can matter um, mm. as much or in the same way that sea level rise matters. Um, so for that, for probabilistic modeling, you have to do a lot of simulations, so thousands. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a very specific project, um, not just kind of an open-ended thing uh, where we needed results relatively quickly. And that's kind of one of the main advantages of SLOSH. Um, so it uses a different numerical method, finite uh, difference, which is going to be faster. Um, and so it runs really quickly. There's kind of standardized meshes. Um, so it's kind of like more out the box, you can run it. Um, and so I've done some work under the hood of it. So like trying to adjust the, uh, wind field or the way that the wind field is represented. Um, but for the most part, like it's, it's something that I can have an undergraduate run for me without a lot of startup. Um, And so it solves similar equations. Um, It gives you similar output. So what's the maximum storm surge? And then, yeah, it's used a lot to inform like what's a worst case scenario for, you know, a category five storm or whatnot. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say to it. Uh, It does have the main advantage that it's quick. So you can do Mm -hmm. thousands of simulations in the, you know, time scale that you need for projects. Whereas AdSerc, it's a lot more detailed. Um, so it just requires a lot more resources. Hmm. Yeah, I, I should have talked to you before I started that master's project with my student. Uh, we, we did, <laughs> it, it all came out fine. It was good. Okay. Um, um, slosh sounds like it would have been right up our alley because I imagine you can change the parameters and like explore the parameter space a little bit and like, well, what happens to storms heard frequent or what happens to some of these measures if you you know, and increase or decrease certain parameters. It sounds like from, from your description. Um, although yeah, one should be I mean, careful. I would, I would say it's a little bit like, I don't know. It's a little bit more out the box is the way it's easy to use. So you can, okay. you can, it's not, I, w- I wouldn't say it's as easy to just adjust the model to whatever thing you're looking for. Mm, okay. Um, so it's designed, I don't want to say to be user-friendly, but in my opinion, it's a little bit, there's less startup. Right. So it's just, it's just kind of easier to run I see. Um, and you can have students doing simulations like the same day, like they install it and then they can run it. Whereas AdSerc, you can do that, but I think there's a little bit more of a learning curve of like, what does this file do? What does this mean? How do you change this? Uh, okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. We, we ended up using um, some data from a Nemo model, which is a the kind of European ocean model um, that, 
was run kind of uh, by the Met Office and the National Oceanography Center. So we're we're very grateful for that data because it was um, like hourly output, which you kind of you do need frequent time output if you're going to study storm surges and things, which can happen you know very quickly. Right. Yeah. So, so I was glad to have that. Yeah. So I noticed. So you're. Um, I'm just looking at my notes over here. If you see me like glancing off to the side, <laughs> I got my little notes notes thing here. Um, you were you're involved with this um, structures of coastal resilience. Looks like yeah. it's an or organization or a. Yeah, want... so that's the project that I worked on in my postdoc, um, and that's the work I was doing slash for. Um, so that project is completed. I think they're extending. You know, they've done uh, different kinds of work since then. My postdoc advisor, mm-hmm. um, but it was a two year two year project supported by Rockefeller Foundation, um, and basically structural engineers and architects were trying to come up with kind of innovative solutions for uh, communities at risk for coastal flooding. Um, So my whole role in that project was to simulate the coastal flooding that might occur present day, end of uh, century and in between. Um, And kind of what was novel about that project, I thought, was they were really looking at like layered approaches to, to improving resilience. Um, so a lot of times we, or we, the people with money want to think about like, oh, let's install this large seawall, let's build these levees, and then they'll protect. Um, and so they were coming up with different types of solutions. So like natural solutions where you're just kind of uh, maintaining wetlands that are already there nature-based where you might put dunes or something that's not like such hard gray infrastructure um, and just kind of like layering things as the risk was increasing. So the question was like more about what are the dynamics of the risk? How is it changing? And then maybe you could provide solutions over time, like build upon so that by, you know, you don't have to invest so much right now in a wall you could maybe invest as you go incrementally as the flood risk was changing. Okay, so you can get down into the details in terms of when one might wanna make various investments for sea defenses and things. You can make a little bit more tailored choices. I'm just gonna shut the window here real quick. Okay, no problem. I'll be interested to I'll be interested to see how you can edit all the work from home <laughs> things that come up. Well, um, to be honest, I don't do a ton of editing, okay. and that's by that's by choice. So I'm kind of I'm modeling that after the podcast that I really like to listen to. Um, they they do kind of include more of that stuff. You know, if there's a little interruption yeah. or a pause or whatever, it's in there. It's fine. It's in there okay. because. The spirit is like, well, let's hear what a real conversation actually sounds like as opposed to a, and this, this is no disrespect to BBC or PBS or anybody, yeah. but it's kind of the opposite of that. Cause with, you know, BBC or like a PBS news broadcast or something like it's going to be very tight and very focused and people always sound weird because they've chopped out half of what they actually said. And then suddenly somebody's speaking up in, in yeah. a different register and like, because they've, yeah. they've trimmed it all up. Uh, but I, I really like just, keeping as much of that in as, as I can. Now, if there's like a five minute break, I'll cut that out or something, sure. you know, and that's, <laughs> that's fine. Um, but no, I probably won't worry about uh, individual little, you know, closing the window or something like that. Right. I've got like a kind of open-ended uh, question and uh, I'll, 
feel free to you know take this in any any direction you want. But when you consider your field, your research field, um, and I'll let you decide what the scope of that that is. What are some of the biggest challenges right now for your field, and uh, do you do you see ways forward of addressing that? Or and and another way to ask that, another way to frame that would be um, looking ahead. Do you think the progress in your field will be lots of small advances, or do you see a potential for oh, if X happens, there'll be a really big leap ahead. You know, that's kind of another way to frame it, you know? Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going to answer this like a little bit more broadly. I think what's really coming to light, especially with COVID, is that in a way there are no fields, right? There there are Mm. whole systems. So, I mean... If I want to answer that, like I've been asked stuff like that before, and I use especially like job interviews, right? Sure, <laughs> um, sure. Oh no, it's a job interview. <laughs> and so I used to think like, oh yeah, we need to, you know, we need to get this other physics in, or we need to speed up, you know, these these calculations or whatever. But I think kind of a better um, way that I've kind of transitioned into thinking is just things are connected. Um, so like I've, I know right now, like a lot of people are thinking about like compound flood risk and how do you under, you know, if you're a coastal resident, you don't really care if you get flooded from the left or from the right. So is it coming from offshore coastal flooding storm surge, or is it coming because a river flooded and then flooded your house? Um, and so that's difficult to model just because of the physics. So like just purely physics, like I think the intersection of different types of risk is like a big area. And I think, I mean, with COVID, I think that's what's being illustrated to us. So it's like, well, we can't fix this health problem, but then this health problem actually caused all these economic problems. Yeah. And so I think, I think these things don't exist in isolation, like nothing does. I would say, yeah, I would say like the, that's the challenge is, is understanding the complexities and the intersections of my field with other fields. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the, the NCAR innovator program, that's basically what we've been doing is trying to think about like how things act as systems um, and what, so we've had, that's, that's the other thing I did today was had a meeting with one of the other innovators to figure out like where is there potential for collaborations of our like two relatively different areas. Um, so I would I would say that's that's like a big challenge across sciences across across disciplines. Um, is just sure. looking at things kind of more broadly, and then obviously I I don't really think that there's one light switch we can turn Mm -hmm. and then it's all solved i think it's going to be a bunch of incremental changes to to figure this out it's uh, you're i I agree with you i think that's probably the case it's funny how sometimes when you write grant applications you have to frame things as like this is going to crack open so many and hopefully it will hopefully i'm not saying that we're all I'm not, I'm not saying we're exaggerating, but it's funny how you have to frame it that way. Sometimes it's like, this thing is going to crack open so many other areas, but you're right. It's every small advance is important. Every incremental advance is important. We sort of use this word incremental as derogatory, but why? <laughs> we're all, all these small advances matter. They add up to, to a bigger picture. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I'm just not convinced that, I don't know, it may be in my ignorance, but I'm not, I'm not really convinced that there are big changes that will solve everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe there are some fields like that, but I would, you know, venture to say that probably that advance is impacting or impacted by some other thing and you can't possibly capture all of the problem. Yeah. That's a great answer. How, how you doing? You doing, you're all right for time and yeah, I'm fine. need a, need a break or anything. I don't know where the kids are, but it's quiet. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's quiet. Yeah. Sometimes I stay up a little bit later than I probably should just to enjoy the like quiet, just to like, yeah. Listen, do you hear that? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just calm. Oh, um, they're weird. I've just got the one. He's eight. Um, okay. He's, he's, he's great. He's very energetic and talkative, which is yeah. awesome. And that's, that's his frequency and I love it. Um, and, and it is also nice to have quiet time in the evenings. That is also very useful. I <laughs> know. Uh, I agree. So um, I noticed on your website, you mentioned you were born in Colorado. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah. Where did you grow up there? Um, so I grew up mostly in Littleton. Okay, yeah. I know... Um, south a little bit, south of Denver, like 20 minutes. Right, yeah. I um I spent some time in Fort Collins, because that's where I did my, my PhD, was up at Colorado State. Okay. And, um, Bold- and uh, spent some time there and in Boulder, and I, I really love Colorado. It's just fantastic. Like, it's just yeah, a beautiful okay. state, and people on the whole are really kind of positive and kind of really friendly and try to be helpful. And yeah, I just, I really enjoy it. So um, mm-hmm. what, what, what brought you out there? What, or what were your, uh, what were your folks up to if, out there? If you don't mind me asking. Still? Oh, or... well, I just was wondering what brought, like what brought your family to, to Colorado or how, you know. Uh, so my dad was military. Um, yeah. Colorado Springs is military. So I think mm-hmm. that's how they landed there. Yeah. And then I think, everyone just loved it. So they never left. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I but, can't blame them. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I love it too now, but certainly when I was 18, I was like, where can I go? That's far away. <laughs> and that's, that's fair. I mean, that's so your instinct was to, you know, get out, explore, see other things yeah. and get different perspectives. Yeah. And that's a, it's a good, a good instinct, I think. And like a lot of young people have that in it makes sense. It's kind of your opportunity, right? I mean, it's yeah, your opportunity exactly. to, to get out and see something different. So, so you went to Louisiana, I saw. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, Grambling State. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did, I guess um, another question I could ask along those lines is like, um, when did you start kind of thinking like leaning towards mathematics and leaning towards, you know, those kind of uh, quantitative fields, you know, yeah. when, I mean, so through school, I pretty much liked school. Yeah. If there was a subject that I didn't love, it's probably like history. That's so mm. everything else I pretty much took like AP or I went as far as I could in school. Cool. Um, and so, I mean, I, I was, I don't know if you can be good at school, but you know, I was just that kind of student where it's like, oh, it's there. I want to learn. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to be a lawyer for a really long time. Um, and so when I went to, when I 
got accepted to Grambling, you had to declare a major right away, which all of the schools I applied to didn't have that. Um, and so I picked criminal justice. But then because I had taken the AP classes in high school, um, I didn't have, I had finished all the math requirements. So they were like, oh, if you're going to be a criminal justice major, then you don't need any more math. Um, but I guess just because I had spent the past year being told by, you know, our teachers, well, when you get to college, then you'll be ready for, you know, Cal 3 or whatever. Mm, right. Um, yeah. I just decided to take it anyway. Like I'd been kind of like mentally prepped to take this class and I knew it existed and, you know, there's more to learn. So I'm not going to just stop. And then. Vector calculus. um, Yeah. (laughs) You got to learn vector calculus. (laughs) I just wanted to, I know it's there. So yeah. Then my teacher at Grambling um, was more or less like, why are you here? Like your major is criminal justice. And then. I told him, and then he was like, I'll come to my office. And then we talked and changed my major. Uh, <laughs> oh. they, they, uh, yeah, he, he could sense it. He's like, I think, I think we might could grab this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it was kind of unusual there for even the people that had to take <laughs> higher level math to want to take them. So mm. I think he was, yeah, like, oh, I need to take advantage of this person who, not the person, but, you know, this opportunity that there's a person who wants to be in this class. Yeah, yeah, it, um, at some places, and my undergrad was like this as well, and I'm, I'm not trying to generalize, I'm just based, based on what you yeah. just said, it sounds like it might be kind of similar to where my undergrad was, like, if you were genuinely interested in your subject, like, that you could get your professors really excited and like really want to talk to you. Like, cause, okay. you know what I mean? It's just like, they, um, they were like, if you were really interested in your subject, like that was, and, and maybe it's not the same across every department. Right. I mean, and maybe different departments have different experiences, but what you just said about the mathematics department kind of being like, Oh, I think there's some, there's a, somebody who's yeah. actually interested here that resonated with me. Cause I can think of like, you know, the math department at Georgia Southern or the physics department, or to some extent, even like the history and philosophy type departments, um, you know, those are all places where if you showed a real interest, they probably would be uh, keen to keep you around and keen to yeah, keep you in their no, project. Sure. And I mean, yeah, this particular professor was, was great, like really looked out for me and helped me get internships and whatnot. So I think, yeah, yeah I think as a professor now, like I kind of get it where it's like, you know, you're, you're always kind of have your eye out for good candidates for whatever. So let's just the opposite. I don't want to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yeah. It's it's just the opposite attitude of, I mean, I had, uh, we had engineering professors come to our, you know, high school physics class and tell us how, you know, they were going to they're, they're basically their attitude is like, well, we're just going to crush as many of you as possible. And we're just not here to support you. And like, wow. and I don't know if, um, so that was a bit more of the Georgia tech kind of, okay. you know, engineering, like, I guess they've got everybody wanting to come there and they've got kind of a, can't they, they're known for having kind of an intense attitude about, okay. um, you know, in, in the engineering departments anyway, uh, of like, you know, really crush, crushing people. Um, and they sort of see it as a sink or swim sort of. So I just mean like that, attitude where a professor like sees potential in you and kind of believes in you enough to like invite you that's such a lovely experience to have as an undergrad and it's it's just the opposite of having the whole place basically as a you know is out to get you (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really glad that I went to a place that um, was supportive like that. I think I needed that at that time in my life. And I think sure. I knew enough to know that like, okay, I, I kind of need a place that will support me in that way. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I had the wherewithal to know, like I need this or really want this, but mm. I am really glad. I think it is relatively common at HBCUs that your faculty are like that. Like I haven't really heard stories from people who went to one who would say, you know, oh, this was like a filter class or whatever they are mm, called. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard a, another way I've heard that put, and I'm really just talking about, you know, my undergrad experience again, you know, not trying to overgeneralize, but like, I think I really benefited from being a, a relatively big fish in a small pond, you know, just like to be a big fish, all you had to do was like be genuinely interested and, yeah. <laughs> and that was enough to make you a big fish. And so that was, I think that was good for my self-confidence. Um, whereas I wonder if I had gone to some sink or swim kind of place or, you know, would I have come out with the same level of confidence or would I have been kind of, you know, uh, humbled and been like, okay, I'll just keep my head down. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, what was the experience moving from Colorado to Louisiana like for you? Um, well, I got made fun of for my accent a lot. <laughs> from, <laughs> At a, first, for sure. But. From a, a Colorado accent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Louisiana, the, I mean, Grambling's in northern Louisiana. So it's mm. like really, to me, like that's the real South. You know, like mm. there's parts of Texas where it's like, this is South, but not really. But um <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I just didn't have a Southern accent and to them that was, oh, you have this other accent, but um, it was good. I mean, it just took a, took a minute to, you know, warm up, I would say Mm. at first, you know, you're just in a completely new place. But I think once I kind of got adjusted, I mean, now like some of my closest friends I know from there. So it's definitely like became a home pretty yeah. my uh, wife has a story about that she moved as a kid from charleston south carolina to southeast georgia um right. so you wouldn't you wouldn't think that it would be that different but she she had a different accent and on her first day in this rural school in southeast georgia one of the kids came up and and i'm from the south so i don't feel bad about putting on a southern accent and he, he basically said like you talk funny <laughs> like so just that experience of that's just what that kid was used to you know he was just used to like hearing the southern twang and he's like where's your twang basically is what he was saying yeah yeah no it was and it was I don't know it was a strange thing to be made fun of for but (laughs) yeah because that's just how you've grown up that's just the world you're you're in you know I've definitely not been made fun of that before Mm, yeah but yeah it it was good like I mean I think I don't know. I think a lot of good things came from going there and, you know, it's not something I would change or, you know, I I don't know. I think about like, Oh, am I going to like want my kids to go there? And I'm like, well, I'll try to be flexible, but I certainly would support it if they wanted to. Cool. You were in the band there. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty major thing there. So. Yeah, I I feel bad for the the kids that are there right now because they're missing, you know, they're missing a season basically. Yeah. Um, but we traveled a lot. Like we played for the Cowboys. We played, we played all over the place. So we played oh, in cool. the grade. What's so. your instrument? Uh, flute and piccolo. Flute and piccolo. Cool. Nice. Yeah. So you got to, 
And that, 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 I imagine, gave you, did you do that right away or did you get into that a little bit later in your, your time there? No, I, I did it right away. Yeah. Right away. I mean, so I that, wasn't planning to be in a band in college. I had done hmm. it, you know, through middle school and high school, hmm. but hmm. Um, because I went there, I mean, that band is pretty famous. So yeah, I just, oh. of course I would be in the band. <laughs> so that, I imagine, gave you, it's kind of a ready-made social group right there, yeah, you know. And that I imagine that helped with the transition some because you've already yeah. got a set of people to practice with and interact with and hang out with and yeah, be on yeah. and be on long trips with, right? That that can really help. Yeah, no, it was great. <laughs> it's great. I, I don't know what Grambling would have been like for me if I weren't in the band. Mm. Um yeah, I have no idea what other people do because we're just kind of our own world, you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I did um high school band, so um, I know I know a little bit about the kind of world that might have been maybe um, yeah. you know that so I, I played electric bass okay. um, and that was fun and in marching band I was obviously a, on the pit crew on the side okay, cool. I had my little amp and I had a battery and a convert like a car battery and a converter and so that was how <laughs> it was mobile um, oh. but that was such a it's such a it's such a fun and rewarding culture to be a part of where it can because you're like doing something together you're doing something creative together practicing a skill together and getting better and you know you're uh, making each other laugh on long bus rides back oh yeah for sure and I think yeah just like sorry my dog is (laughs) it's not the children it's the dog um yeah but I think is yeah so much of my college experience is shaped by that too so the other day one of one of the people I was in the band with posted on Facebook like oh what's the worst you know game you ever had and like all of us that were at this particular game immediately like said that game so oh my gosh. I don't know what 16 years now <laughs> like, uh, oh, yeah and I remember and we all just like remembered exactly so I want to hear about the game now fun. what happened what happened? Oh, so <laughs> in show bands, you have to have your music memorized, right? You mm. don't have it with you. Um, so basically, there was a song that the director said he was going to call, and we didn't know it, and we told him we didn't know it, oh. and he called it anyway to teach us a lesson for not learning what we were supposed to learn. So we oh played it, and it did not go well. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was... A piece that you all were supposed to have practiced, or like that you have had it to memorized. Ah, uh, okay, I it. see. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's basically like, is a song ready or not in a show band? Just means like, do you have it memorized, and have you played it enough together to like, you know, hmm. get the details correct, like the um, volumes and whatnot correct? All right. And Great. sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's difficult, right? Like, <laughs> you memorize everything that you play. Totally. So some things pretty, are ready before others. And yeah, it, was, it wasn't good. <laughs> pretty bold, bold move by the director, right? To just say like, because in that moment, I imagine, it's, is it a competition? Can you possibly like win trophies and things? Or is it more no, just No, it's a, not like uh, that. It's just kind of like uh, bragging rights or just knowing like you are a good band. So no, it's, there's not really a score, but I mean, we were all certainly embarrassed and remember it very well 16 years later. Forever. I'm sure you'll never forget it. I'm sure you'll be. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and we were also like, we also were very, very ready the next week. <laughs> we did know it a week later. 
yes, that was the that was the lesson. That was the like, okay, here's what will happen if you don't know it. Here's yeah, a demonstration. Yeah. So you mentioned on your website that like Hurricane Katrina and uh, Rita happened while you were there. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to see um, in a, I mean, you weren't in New Orleans, but in a pretty, you were pretty close to the devastation of it and certainly very aware of it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And did that shape your perception and your sense of like what you might want to work on and kind of what relevant problems are? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So 2005, I was a sophomore and I remember like we were, I don't really remember Katrina, like as it happens, mm-hmm. I don't think it impacted the part of Louisiana that I was in. Cause I don't remember it for Rita. I at least remember the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I remember we had band practice like shortly after Katrina. And I remember our drum major just saying like, Oh yeah, all kinds of stuff is happening. There's hurricanes, blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, it was a big deal. It was something that, you know, would come up in practice as like motivation for why we need to, you know, have community and and take care of each other. Um, but for me, it it just just seeing that happen and realizing that, you know, it was people that looked like me that were on the news and on their roofs and seemingly not being taken care of. Um, people I knew had family members that were in shelters. Like I had a friend and his sister was killed in a shelter. Oh, wow. So just kind of seeing like the tragedy that the storm caused, but then also like the aftermath caused really made me want, like it, it showed me how important this is. Like just one thing could cause all of this havoc. Um, right. And for the following summer, I had an internship at MCAR. And yeah, I think that summer probably everybody wanted to work on hurricane mm-hmm. research, but I was able to get a project where we were trying to understand like the relationship between intensity and atmospheric water vapor. Um, so yeah, and I think I think that definitely sparks my interest, just seeing like the societal impact of it and particularly for like my community mm-hmm. made me interested. I wouldn't say like at that point I knew, oh, I want to do hurricane research. Um, but it at least, you know, facilitated the project that summer. And I think having that on my resume really helped me when I went into grad school. Um, so yeah, I think recently like Katrina keeps coming up for me again and again. Mm. Um, even in some, like we have a paper that we're doing the review for right now where we're really trying to talk about risk communication and this historical association with the Saffir-Simpson category and kind of the impact of the storm. Um, And so what came up from that was how Katrina was just, it accounts for so many of the deaths that have happened from storm surge. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's just been interesting because I feel like things are kind of like coming full circle for me. just Hurricane Katrina keeps coming up again and again. So, I mean, it's definitely mm. been impactful and I'm, I'm really happy that it's appearing again, <laughs> you know, after like 10 years of studying differential equations and, <laughs> you know, programming and whatnot, I'm glad to, to kind of be back there. This focal point, you know, it kind of, it, you can connect that to your motivation somewhat and the yeah, kind of yeah. uh, raw 
power of the physical system as well. That's something that like, I think that's part of what got me into the field of just kind of being in awe of like this rock, the, the fluid on this rock that we're spinning on is <laughs> just has all this raw power behind it. And we're so, we're so small and insignificant relative to it. So that, that, you know, the physical power of the system, the impacts on, you know, real people, like yeah. you said, on your, on your community, on people you knew, and uh, like it had a, it was very concrete. Like it wasn't an abstract, you know, number of people or a, a map showing you the different flooded areas. It was, you know, connecting it to real human, human lives. So, so now you can have this, this like really dynamic through line and in, in my perception anyway, like between studying differential equations and, you know, risk to specific people and impacts to like people that you might even know. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to just like the power of mathematics to me. And that's something that I think is really, really beautiful about it. And um, I don't mind if I sound nerdy saying that. I know I'm in a, I'm in a safe, safe space and talking with another uh, professional nerd. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, so that informed, so the, I really love Boulder, by the way. What'd you think of Boulder? Do you like Boulder? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's okay. And the, did you, were you at the NCAR, the Mesa lab up on the big hill or they, they've got a few different campuses I've never there? I've an office there. I've yeah. always, like, so I've spent a few summers there, including last summer. And my mm. my office has always been in the other lab, but yeah, I've yeah. certainly been there enough to appreciate it. <laughs> the, um, one of the, uh, one of my colleagues spent a couple of years out there and they, uh, they didn't really know the area before they moved there. So they got their apartment all set up kind of remotely. And then they didn't find out until afterwards that like, Oh wait, no, my office is at the other in car. Yeah, they, yeah. they had, they had, <laughs> they had gotten housing like really close to the Mesa lab one and then come to find out like, and they're not close, right. They're actually kind of, it's a bit they're of a drive. Town, yeah. yeah. They're across <laughs> town. So, um, Cool. So after that, so you were you went to UT Austin, to this right. institute that we talked about, right. um, and uh, was that? So the institute was pretty heavily mathematical, like you said. Yeah, um, yeah. The degree is computational and applied math. So, yeah. yeah. What was that transition like for you? Go, going to Austin and yeah. enrolling in this new program. Yeah, that transition was very hard. <laughs> Was it? So, yeah. I mean, there's no way to like sugarcoat that. It was not good. Lots of tears. Um, mm. Yeah. And I would say, I'm trying to think, I just remember probably, so school starts in August. I think there was a day in like October where I just came home and just like cried. Yeah. Um, what were you finding hard about it? I mean, so often they can hard, be. Yeah. I think what was hard one is just the um, learning curve to go from undergrad to grad. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that happens in every field. I've certainly like seen students at, at UCF who didn't seem to have much of an adjustment, but like at least in math, um, you know, you're kind of used to being on top of it all, yeah. or I was, and I mean, I had just not struggled in math ever. Mm -hmm. I struggled a little bit in Cal 3 when I first got to Grambling. And then just quickly worked out enough problems. And then I, you know, was able to do well in that class too. Um, and when I got to grad school, I just felt so lost 
that I didn't even know what to go study. Mm, <laughs> it was right. just like they were speaking a foreign language. Um, and so that was really hard for me. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to leave you by yourself because I want to tell you that like, um, that I can really relate to that. And the way I relate to that is my transition from uh, physics undergrad. So I, I did physics for the first couple of bits of degree stuff that I did. So I, from physics undergrad to physics grad school, that was a really rough transition for, for me as well. And um, it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, you, you're used to being pretty on top of it. Maybe there's a chat, a class that's challenging here or there or a problem set or a test that's challenging, but overall, you know, you get used to like, oh, I can do this. I'm, <laughs> I'm all right. Yeah. And then, like you said, you get to grad school and um, the level of difficulty and expectation just ratchets way up. There's just this, yeah. this step change. Right. Um, and, you know, like I took classes with professors who were like, um, well, here's my latest paper, or here's a paper that I wrote 10 years ago. Why don't you uh, work out all the derivations between, you know, equation one and equation 10 and like, okay. like rederive this paper. And I'm, and I just felt so lost. Um, I got through it. Okay. Ish in the end, but um, actually with that grad program, I decided to, de I, I decided to stop at the master's level and kind of pursue something else, which ended up being uh, fine. Cause I'm really happy with how things turned okay. out, but it was, it was, uh, it wasn't really working out that well for me yeah. in Isn't Kentucky. It that if you decide to go to graduate school for a master's and then do it, then it's a success. <laughs> but if you start a PhD program and leave with a master's, it's like a failure. <laughs> I I still think of it as success. I know what you mean though. Like people don't think of it as a success, but it, it should be right. It, it's, sure. you can, you still can get a master's. You can still earn a master's and you know, and not like, every, you feel it was a success at that time like you do now but when you were making that choice I'm really I'm glad you asked I felt conflicted about it I kind of I kind of knew it was the right call okay. but I definitely felt a sense of loss of like I had a particular vision in my head for the future yeah. right and I said you know I'm going to be an astrophysicist which was what I was kind of doing and like I'm going to simulate galaxies and um, I'm sure glad I'm not doing that anymore and I'm, I'm fine with how everything's how everything sure. turned out but yeah at the time I had to like let go of this vision that I had of how the future was going to go and it yeah. was it was it was painful yeah it was so it didn't feel like a success I was glad to get the master's and I felt like I felt like I had earned it I felt like okay I, I worked really hard for yeah. this so I, I have earned this um, but it did feel like I had to let go of something that vision of what the future was going to look like and that that was hard yeah yeah. I mean, I just feel so bad for, bad for, yeah. I'm just always kind of just conscious that like, I think students today have a lot of pressure and I mean, we had it then, but it's just like, you know, social media and blah, blah, blah. I just think that there's these way more pressure to have things figured out and to like plan exactly what you're going to do and then do that. I like heard on this podcast the other day and someone wrote in and was like, oh, I'm 24 years old. And is it too late for me to, you know, change paths? And the host was like, you were, she's like, Instagram has ruined you guys. 24 years old isn't too late to do anything. So I don't know. Right. I just feel like, you know, leaving with a master's is, you got a master's. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have it. I, so I, finished um mm -hmm. the program that I started but it just the beginning was pretty awful <laughs> like mm. it just 
yeah, I mean, just the learning curve. And then I think, you know, the, I didn't really have a community there. Some of that was my own fault. Like I had just come from this place where everyone was more or less like, like me. Um, and I mean, at least in race, but also just like, like-minded, like I was used to being with people in the bands. Like we kind of talked the same way, joked the same way. Um, and then I just came to this program where there's these people who have already done computational mathematics and, you know, I felt like everyone knows more than me. Um, and so it was just really hard. It was really isolating. And I learned later and like, that's kind of the advice I give to students now is like, yeah, if you just work with people, <laughs> it will make things easier. And it's yeah. like, I can still remember some of the sessions I had with other people when I finally did that. And like, you know, I wouldn't say very much because I didn't want people to hear what I didn't know, mm. but like I learned things that I still remember just from doing that, but I wasn't doing much of that. So it was like, I was just kind of struggling by myself, um, trying to go to office hours and not really understanding, you know, you will get a lot more from just working with other students. So it just, it was really difficult. It took me mm -hmm. a while to get myself together, adjust mm -hmm. to kind of the rigor. Um, and like, I still think I never really implemented, you know, the best strategies, which I, again, think is, would have been to just work with other people. Um, That's a good point. But, yeah. yeah, but I think, you know, at some point I was able to do more research and that's a lot less like black and white, you're good at it or not, right? But I knew like I had done that before and I knew kind of how to do that. And, you know, I think I had a really great advisor who, I mean, I got a C in his class, which is basically failing and never said anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think somehow it got better, but it definitely mm. was not a rosy transition yeah I, I wanted to react to a couple of things you mentioned there um one a minute ago you mentioned that kind of by october you were feeling really down um and that was similar for me i feel like that first kind of autumn you know turn into into winter like felt really dark and yeah. um i was definitely eating uh, too many quesadillas uh, was my coping quesadillas were my coping mechanism um in the <laughs> cupcakes <laughs> in the fall of 2005 that was what was going on yeah um so i think it probably it doesn't help that like the semester starts right at, at the beginning of fall right and then you go into the darkness um i mean if you live at a high enough latitude then it, it's it's an effect that shows up right the days get shorter and it gets colder yeah, and you're being challenged in a way that maybe you hadn't quite been challenged before you're probably you're living somewhere probably new that you haven't experienced so yeah, like that transition can be so rough. Yeah. Um, and I love what you said about working with other people, getting kind of enmeshed with the community and yeah. enmeshed with like the other, especially with the other students. That can be so important because that can give you a little cohort of people to work with. Um, and there's another bit. To learn from people that are on your same kind of wave, even if it doesn't feel like it. Because I mean, that was, for me, was a lot of the problem. Like these people don't even know what, Bayou Classic is, or like these people are so different than I am. Mm. Uh, so I don't want them to then also find out like I'm stupid or, you know, it's like ego mixed mm. with like, I don't know, but I was very isolated. And 
you know, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, some of it was because of my own ego. Hmm. Right. What is, what is Bayou Classic, by the way? If you don't oh, it's know. a ball game. <laughs> for, a ball game? It's like our big, our big competition. Oh, oh, it's like a um, baseball, like a baseball, like it's a event. college football game. Oh, my bad. College football game. Yeah, okay. it's Bayou in Classic. New Orleans and um, it's just like our big, it's our last like really big game that we played every year. So. Oh, okay. The Bayou Classic. Uh, I've never been, I never followed sports very closely, so uh this, it's an area of, of ignorance for me <laughs> no that problem. I just don't know that much about. And you probably would um, have been a great colleague for me in grad school. <laughs> uh, Even not knowing what it is, right? So. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's really sweet of you to say. Um, <laughs> and I, I wanted to react to another thing you said. And this is um, a place where I want to say, like, I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot. Sure. We can talk about this as little or as much as you like. I'm I'm really happy to take your lead on it. Um, but you mentioned it a couple of times, so I wanted to see um, if we could dig in a little bit. So you mentioned that, like, when you were there, that there was um, an element of, like, um, you were you were aware of, like, oh, I'm a different race than these folks, and you felt like there was that um, that contrast there. And that's something that I just I don't have experience with and access to. So yeah. if you're happy to talk about it, it'd be um, I'd be happy to learn from you about like what yeah, that's like. But yeah. you know not putting you on the spot if, if yeah, you know yeah. I mean it's fine as long as you understand I'm just one person so <laughs> I mean, it's a great point yeah don't over opinions and feelings about it but yeah I mean it's it's been a big impact on everything I've done I would say yeah and from the sense of just I guess I don't quite know the best way in what are some of the ways it's been impactful um yeah, so I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know, like a clean way to discuss, but let's just say, like, for example, um, I think there's a lot of consciousness right now about, you know, privilege. And I think, uh, you know, it's a privilege to ever be with someone that you do feel like has a similar background to you. Um and that's something like I didn't have. So that's something, for example, in grad school, like I had to and maybe never did really overcome. Like I decided, you know, I know that these people can't relate to me on a level that is largely who I am. And so that like hindered me from maybe seeking support in ways that would not have hindered me if that weren't true. Right. So I think that's that's like a small example um, or like I never had a black professor, um, in graduate school. Mm. I certainly had them at Grambling, but, yeah. um, you know, and I think I've heard people talking about like, when's the first time you had a black professor or a black teacher. And I mean, some people are like, I still have it, you know? Oh, so, well, yeah. I mean, those things, like I, I used to think about it as like, it's a silent message. But like, if you're already struggling, if you're crying in October because you think, you know, you don't understand at all, you don't even know what you don't know. And then there's nobody else that looks like you in the program or teaching. I mean, what is the message, right? And it's like, you Mm -hmm. may not even be conscious of it, but why should you think that that's what you should be doing? And, And nobody else has done it that looks like you. 
there's an element of uh, representation there, right? Uh, that silent, that phrase silent messaging is really powerful. That's, that's impactful. And um, yeah. on a different episode, so uh, we've been talking about people with disabilities and I okay. talked with uh, Caitlin Naughton, who's an oceanographer here at the British Antarctic Survey. And we started this series on disabilities and the geosciences together. And um, that was a theme in our conversation as well was that, um, so she speaks with a stammer and, you know, there are very, very few representations of people who speak with a stammer. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to draw, draw too close of an analogy here, but the common thread I heard was that, um, well, she just didn't feel represented and she didn't see examples of oh, people like her you know, in science or in you know, various other careers. So she had to, that, that just was something she had to grapple with, right? It was something right. that, it was another thing to process and kind right. of, and it sounds and like energy that could have otherwise be spent on physics or whatever you're supposed to be doing. Right. Silent messaging. Yeah. Cause even, even if like all of your, I'm, I'm imagining like, even if all of your professors are all telling you like, you're awesome, you're great, you know, don't worry. And, and maybe your friends are doing the same and like, but that idea of silent messaging, you're just, you're, you're noticing what the field looks like and you're wondering like, is there a place for me? Is there a place for somebody like yeah. me or, or what am I, what am I doing? But yeah. So thank you. Thank you for telling me about that. Cause I think that that definitely is, you know, as a, as a privileged white dude, um, that's, that's not something that I had to spend mental energy on. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. There's, there's various ways in which I don't feel like I fit in, but like you can sort of keep that private. You know what I mean? You can kind of like keep that, you, you, you don't have to keep it private. I'm not saying that that's a good idea, but I'm saying yeah. if one if one wants to, you can sort of keep that a little closer to the to the chest. Right. And um, but maybe it's harder when it's just something that's um, more just there, just like in in the room, right? Um, wow. So I, the, I think that's a really impactful way to put it is like it's just taking up mental energy. Like you know, it's it's something that's running in the background. Some of some of your processing power is is working on that. Right. Um, and so you don't even realize it is the thing. Like, I think, I think, I think I'm more conscious of it now, but I think, yeah, that's what I, I'm aware of with students. Like there's, there's different things that they are dealing with that they don't even know. Mm. Um, and I think it is kind of important. Well, for me, like it, it is important to draw parallels. Um, so it's, it's really, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's been easier for me to understand kind of the struggles of other people. So maybe people with disabilities or trans people or, you know, whatever, because I'll listen to like a podcast where a trans person is discussing things and I'll, I can draw that parallel. So it helps me understand like, Oh, you're ignorant to that in the same way. Like people are ignorant to you or your issues. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't really know if you're not like, I don't know what someone like you might uh, compare it to, right? But I mean, there, I just, there's certainly like a lot of challenges that everyone has. Um, and some of them are just, they're more visible. Yes. I, I like what you're touching up on here because I feel like maybe what we're saying is probably just about everybody has some kind of thread in their life that they could use to relate to 
an experience of like, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if like the messages I'm getting are telling me I don't belong here, but it's important not to overgeneralize that too much. You know, it's important not to then assume like, well, I guess I understand uh, racism because I had that one like, okay, well, it gives you a little window in maybe to, to a, to a limited part of it, but don't assume that you then understand my ignorance. Like it doesn't help me understand why I do know something. It helps me understand how I don't like, Mm. Oh yeah. Same way that other people don't understand this part of my experience, then I'm not going to understand this trans person's experience. And just like, I don't want to be asked, you know, X, Y, Z, then I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to go, you know, do the work on my own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This comedian, um, Bo Burnham, I think he said it on a podcast a few years ago, and it stuck with me for some reason that he says he likes to reserve about uh, 15 to 20%, I think, of his, like, understanding of the world he he reserves it uh to acknowledge that like that's there's some experience i just do not have access to and what i need to do with that is just take people's perspective on board and accept it and if you can try to understand it that's okay but you also have to accept that like well you're not going to be able to experience these things and even if you've got a great imagination you're not going to be able to like directly know what it's like to live day after day you know in uh in in a minority or in like um you know in some of these spaces so i that quote sticks with me and i think that's important that um yeah we know our experiences but our capacity to really deeply know the experiences of others is fundamentally limited right Mm. yeah Yeah. (laughs) gosh that was uh so where where are you um has your perspective on that shifted over the years on kind of uh on, on your relationship with kind of a race and thinking about that particular issue? Is that something that has changed recently for you or? You know, it feels embarrassing to say no. Like the answer can't oh. be no, it hasn't changed, but I would say not significantly. What's, what's really odd right now, or at least, you know, in June, <laughs> I don't, I feel like it's died down some, but hmm. like there's been so much talk about race. Um, and it's as if the problem itself is new <laughs> and actually just the conversations are new. So yes. it's been really odd to like hear people say things that, you know, I've thought or like even said before other people have been saying these things for mm-hmm. years. Um, but I'm glad we can at least talk about them. Yeah. Like for a long time, I felt like, Oh, you know, I've had people in my personal life who are like, oh, I don't want to talk about race anymore <laughs> or, you know, like oh. I mean, not friends, but, you know, and now it's like, oh, no, now everyone wants to talk about it. So I don't I wouldn't really say my perspective has changed in a way that I can immediately like pinpoint. Um, I think I've always identified really strongly with race. I think a lot of that does come from growing up in Colorado. Like it's the first thing people see. Mm. Um, I don't identify with gender as much because race is the first thing people mm. see, I think. Yeah. Um, but I will say like once I had my daughter, then I started to identify with gender a little bit more. <laughs> so oh, okay. maybe that's a way that it's changed. When, when you created life, when you created a human being... <laughs> 
Yeah, because I could just suddenly, I mean, it's like a club, right? Like the, I mean, it might not just be motherhood, but parenthood. Um, So I, yeah, that became a large part of my identity too. How many kids do you you have? Is it? I have one, but my partner has a son too. So there's a lot of the times. (laughs) Yeah. So being a mom is relatively new for you, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's pretty, that transition into parenthood was pretty intense for me. What's it, has it been intense for you as well? Um, it hasn't been too, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it intense. Okay. Um, well, we, we did it all wrong. We, we moved right before, um, <laughs> our son was born. So we moved to Atlanta. Um, you've got Emory in the background there, right? I think that's your background. So we yeah. were, we moved really close to Emory University, um, you know, just really like a month before our son was born. It was too, it was too soon to the due date to move, but it was either that or wait until uh, winter to move actually was the yeah. choice we were faced with. So we just right. said, let's just get it over with. But it was, you know, new job, new city, new place and too many new things. And like, yeah. it was, it was, it was rough, but, it, but it's been more of a, a smoother transition for you. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I also, I moved into a house right before she was born, but you know, I had a job like, and I was, had gotten pretty boring. Like I wasn't really doing a lot. Like it was perfectly fine with me when I had to suddenly be home at 7 PM every day mm-hmm. um, to put her to bed. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it's as she's been like a really easy baby too. So that's nice. <laughs> and I mean, now she's, she's two now and she's still, like if she gets upset, she's tired or hungry, which is nice. Because <laughs> so. you can fix those things, right? You yeah, know what exactly. to do. I mean, the tired yeah. can be harder to fix, but, you know, at least she has a decent schedule. So she doesn't, I mean, she's just an easy baby. But what it did do was it made my, it made me more efficient. Hmm. And it made me realize that I needed, uh, I don't want to say... Let me think how I want to put this. It made me realize I was working too much and that mm. I needed things to change. That <laughs> you had to balance things out in a different way. Yeah, it's just, I mean, before her, I could just say like, oh, I'll just work nonstop all weekend to get all these things done. And sometimes I would do that. And sometimes I wouldn't, I would just feel bad about not doing it. Mm. Uh, but once I had her, I don't have all weekend, right? Because yeah there so um it helped me like kind of realize how much time and energy I was putting into things and then like I think once I realized that I just realized it wasn't sustainable I had to find another job where I had more resources yes parenthood was my introduction to the the ceiling like to there being you know an upper limit to what you can do (laughs) Yeah, like, oh. especially because that task never like lowers, right? Like some things you can skimp on, but like you can't really. The kid doesn't really care. No, 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 no. They they need you a, a lot, like frequently, and that does change when they get older to some extent. But they still need you, you know, for a long. I mean, my Four. kid's only only eight, so um, you mentioned like being able to take care of, you know tired or hungry you can do that you can solve those problems and i i liked that part about early parenting of like yeah i can i can help like i know what to do <laughs> like uh, maybe maybe I, you know there's a period where like you just feel really 
most of the time like effective you can actually help solve their problems and then it's sometimes harder like you know alex is getting a little older and his problems are getting a little bit more complex and a little more like psychological and i can't i can try to help and listen but i i don't quite have the same level of efficiency of just like right. here's a meal now you'll feel better like it's <laughs> it's a little it can be a little more complicated than that yeah. um we didn't talk about uh oh, princeton you spent some time at princeton yeah so, um, I guess we talked about the project you were, you were on, right? That was that structures. What do you think of Princeton? Do you like living up there? So yes and no. Yeah. Um, I lived there about a year and a half. And I mean, I think it's a beautiful place. I think it wasn't the right place for where I was in my life. So it's very quiet. Like I'd probably be very mm. happy there now, um, even though I do kind of like bigger cities. Um, but I liked that it was near in the Northeast. I had never lived there before. I didn't like that it was in the Northeast. So it was like winter for five months at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think a misconception about Colorado is that it's cold because it is cold, but it's sunny. So it's yes. like even in the winter, the sun might come up and then it's basically a summer day or right. I mean a cool, a cool summer day, but it's sunny and the snow melts and it doesn't pile up and get dirty yeah dry so. too dry too yeah it's yeah Colorado. so I mean I think Princeton was just kind of I don't know it was hard in that way like it's not a good mm. place to be new because mm. you know it's older everyone around there knows each other people aren't going out to meet each other very much um they usually are doing things together in their houses so oh, it was right. just hard and like postdocs a weird time where you're not coming in with like a cohort of people that you're all new it's like you just come <laughs> um, and try to figure it out so I mean I made some great friends through CrossFit um and like people that I still know and communicate with um but I was I was just a little bit lonely while I was there because of those things so yeah, I mean, work life was good and the city was good. I got really involved in prison teaching there. That was great. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, definitely wasn't my favorite move. What were you teaching there? Um, in prison? Yeah. Algebra. And algebra, yeah. Mm. So is that is that a program where, so uh, are the classes like algebra and what are some of the other classes that are kind of taught in that program yeah, so do you know they basically have the capacity to give an associates which they do it's it's connected with the community college so mm. more or less everything like lower level i would say yeah, um, yeah. and i mean the person who was most involved at that time wasn't she was a astrophysicist too and i feel like she had developed a astrophysics class but there's like literature there's biology so there's kind of everything like general classes oh cool right yeah so there's some opportunity to work towards an associates thing yeah yeah cool. yeah no and i think um i mean i know of people who earned their associates and then once they got out then they transferred to school to rutgers and graduated yeah so when they get out they've got something to build on like yeah, yeah exactly so um, we don't have to wrap up. I mean, I want to be respectful of your time and I know you got kids. So I'm kind of, you know, if, if we, if we are, we are now kind of in the, you know, winding up area, 
but yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to artificially draw anything to a close if there are threads that you want to make sure we pick up on in a, in a particular way or other bits. But I like to end with this set of questions about what you've learned. Sure. So I'm wondering if you can say something about what's something that you've learned about science and the way it works that you didn't know before you got involved with science or mathematics. You know, I kind of see them as, you know, I know people like to separate them, but they're really like fundamentally aligned <laughs> activities. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think because we're doing so much work on systems thinking <laughs> that I'm just going to again say that everything's connected. Um, so there, there are disciplines, but they're they're kind of artificial. Um, everything impacts everything else, mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of what I'm learning right now, or doing the most work on right now. Yes, yeah, the systems thinking and yep, exactly. And we have like I'm reading this systems thinking book oh oh your background is making thinking yeah. in systems Danella h meadows yeah, yeah. Is that, <laughs> so is that good are you enjoying that so far uh yeah i just started it but yeah it's it's good it's it's what we've been thinking and talking about a lot cool how about what's something you've learned about uh academics academia you know making that whole thing work which could be different than science right it could be like yeah. how how does one navigate the academic world yeah i think it's a lot of work <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah i don't yeah i don't think i knew that and i don't think i ever really just sat down and realized that but looking back it's like no this is a lot of work like it's three jobs in one <laughs> totally um, right yeah research yeah, I teaching I don't, people, I don't think people realize that like when i tell people i'm a professor they say oh what, how many classes do you teach? And I one or two. Oh, oh, okay, that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah, my um, my PhD advisor, um, I got to witness a conversation between him and a neighbor, um, and you know, he's like, this happens all the time, where he introduces himself and he says, oh yeah, I'm a professor, and of course the person says, must be nice to have the summers off, and it's like, no, that's not. But so my advisor didn't really push back on it because he's basically like he he's like he, he kind of is like uh do I want to have that same conversation a thousand yeah. times or should I just let it go it's not that it's fine <laughs> it's yeah. not that important I think that's kind of what I do too yeah if, if you're close enough to me that it would matter for me to explain then you'll see soon enough <laughs> yeah for sure yeah the three jobs research teaching and service the yeah yeah exactly so how about teaching? What's something you learned about, about teaching, teaching that you didn't know before? It could be or like working with students in general. Um, something I've learned. You mentioned that like you were able to, you know, use your past experiences to deduce that like, oh, remember students are going through potentially a lot of things that might not be obvious to you, you know, as a, an advisor or as a, somebody teaching a class, you know, you never quite know what all your students are going through. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking just what's something new though. And I would say that I like it a lot more than I might've thought. Like even as late as grad school, I was still considering you know, going into industry. Um, 
And I, I think I just understand I would be a lot less fulfilled. So even though it is three jobs, like I don't really have interest in giving the one up, um, you know, and I think at one point I thought, and I still think like I could make that work, but I am really grateful that like, I do really, really like working with students. And I like that I keep getting older, but they stay the same age. <laughs> that time perspective, right? Then suddenly over time, <laughs> you become more and more experienced relative to them. So, you know, yeah. suddenly you're like, oh, I'm, I'm relatively wise, actually. I have some, some amount of experience that I can draw on. Um, uh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I just like working with younger people. It's, it's cool. Yeah, they um, there's something about there the uh, for younger people they can be at that time of life where that all the possibilities are in front of them. They're trying to figure out what they respond to and what they are good at, and that and it's exciting to think that you might be able to help somebody you know in that part of their life. Like if you could, yeah, there's I mean they just have like new fresh perspective just always. <laughs> Um, which is nice. But also, I think, I mean, I'm thinking about a, like, non-traditional students I've had. And, like, I like those, too. So, I don't, I mean, I kind of, I like having a non-traditional student that's not young. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think I just like being able to engage with, like, this range of people where it's, like, I guess the common tie is that they want to learn something definitely yeah but I think it's a really cool job so I think I think it's that I like teaching more than I would have predicted that's cool yeah I wanted to react to something you said there about um non-traditional students because so when I was in Atlanta there where you are um I did some part-time teaching at Atlanta Metropolitan State College which is a two-year college kind of on the south south part of the city and uh, one of my students there was uh, in a mathematics class was an older gentleman who had been a bus driver for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this guy was so on top of it and so sharp and so interested in so many different things that like, it's not that it was a surprise or anything, but it was just a really nice concrete example of like, don't forget, like, you know, even the people like driving your bus, like, don't forget, just, it's a nice reminder. Like, you know, they, um, they're, they're a complex, full, rich human being as well. And they might be super interested in math. You, you never know, right? Yeah. So I really, that's part of what working with those uh, folks can sometimes give you is that, uh, and that because non-traditional students, usually the case with them, they are there because they really want to be there. They have, they've had time to think about it and they have, they like want to learn and they want to, yeah. whereas sometimes with younger people, they might be following a trajectory and some inertia and that can be fine. I'm not really putting that down, but it kind of, it can show in people's behavior a bit. If, if you're following inertia versus making a really concrete decision about the next step in your life. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we could possibly end on a question that we kind of started with. And okay. What's something you learned about writing that you didn't know <laughs> when you first kind of started? I mean, something I definitely didn't know, I don't even know how recently, but I did not realize how much of it I would be doing. Mm, right. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I mean, uh, in undergraduate research programs, 
like SOARS at NCAR in particular, we had weekly writing workshops. And I just thought like, oh, this is just part of the pro- the program. Like, you know, never really mm-hmm. thought too much about like, why are we putting so much emphasis? But I would say I spend way more time writing than I ever would have thought <laughs> and thinking about writing and reading about writing. and Yeah. So. <laughs> Rachel McCreary on this podcast a few episodes ago was like, um, she said, now, if somebody had told me when I signed up for my for my major that there'd be this much writing, I don't know if I would have <laughs> stuck yeah. with it. Um, do you yeah. do you? En- so you're doing a lot more of it. How do you feel about it, though? Do you are you kind of enjoying it, or is it kind of? I, I mean, think- so I've had people on here who like hate writing, so don't feel bad if that's your answer. That's totally fine. No, I don't hate it. I definitely. Um, I don't know. I enjoy some parts of it for sure. Like I do. I do see the value in science communication, honestly. Um, I am one of those people that feels like, well, if I can't communicate it, then what was the point? Um, I'm not doing anything I'm doing just because I enjoy coding or, you know, so I think it's important. I do enjoy it, (laughs) Um, but, you know, when I have, I do get stuck. So like I get stuck in literature reviews Mm. for sure I've identified that recently like this seems to be a common place um but I don't hate it and I do I will say I think I like writing papers um and I think I'm gonna see if I like or dislike proposals because for a while I was feeling like I don't like working on proposals Mm. but part of that was that I was kind of being squeezed into boxes and proposing things that I didn't want to do. Um, Mm. So I think like now I have a little bit more freedom and I'll see. So I submitted like a LOI with a letter of interest with someone recently. And I was like, oh, that was a lot less traumatic than I remember it being. So I'm like, Mm. well, maybe it's going to make a difference. Like the, you know, work I'm able to propose at Emory. Um, So we'll, we'll see. But I think if you can collaborate, that can help, right? Because if you get yeah. get an experienced person to help you, that, that really can smooth smooth the uh, track. Yeah, yeah, I'm learning a lot of things are better when you don't do it alone. <laughs> <laughs> right in the right in time for the pandemic. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I thought of one more actually that might be might be nice to because um, this is something you've written about um, on your website being interested in and we've talked about the the edges of it here a little bit but is there something you've learned about inclusion that maybe you didn't know like in the broader sense of like how do we make sure we have as many artificial barriers lowered as possible to where it's you know a bit where it's uh, easier for people to have access to either the information we're working with or participating in the scientific process um yeah i think I think probably the most important thing I've learned about inclusion is kind of similar to like math, where it's it's not really as hard to do it as you think it is. Like you've mm. made it harder to mind because mm. I think like a lot of times if you tell someone you do math and they just, you know, they're automatically are over here like, oh, she knows this. Mm. And, you know, if you just read like a few things, you realize like maybe that gap isn't as far as you think it is. And that's kind of what I've been learning about being more inclusive. Like 
it may seem overwhelming to like try to understand or look into what are the experiences of other people but you know it really just takes like you read like a book or you read like listen to a podcast and then you know you maybe are less intimidated by how much you don't know like not thinking you know more but just like oh it's probably not so difficult to learn more as I've Mm. been making it uh, I like that answer. That's really good. Yeah, that it doesn't have to be as hard as you might think. Yeah, yeah. yeah give it, give it a try, and the, some of the barriers might come down a little more quickly than you than you realize. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a resistance by people to math and to other, you know, social issues, and I think that's why, because you're intimidated by how much you don't know, but you know, you just start. <laughs> to start yeah and then there's a responsibility on on us the people who are kind of doing the science and doing the outreach to uh try to to not be intimidating basically (laughs) to try to be welcoming and to try to um you know lower some of those barriers and to enable that participation well uh talia this has been really awesome i've really loved this conversation this has been such a special time for me just like i got to learn a lot from you and i got to have an in-depth conversation along so many different avenues so i'm really happy um that we did this and thank you again so much for for taking the time out is there anything else you want to talk about no i think yeah this was great thank you you're happy happy with the the, pro- the thing we have created, <laughs> we have yeah. created a conversation. <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks again, Talia. It's, uh, it's been great. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when I have it all produced and things It it might, it might be a little while. I've actually got a lot of these recorded um, and they, I don't put them out in order necessarily. Sometimes like, you know, well, people might have different things coming out or whatever. And so I might shuffle right. the order around some, but I'll, I'll let you know how all that goes. Cool. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Talia Mayo from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find her on Twitter at Talia Mayo, or you can go to her really nice website, taliamayo.com. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. And yeah, you can follow the podcast, of course, at ClimateSciPod as well for updates. Okay, so I said I would share something kind of personal at the end of these episodes, so here we go. I can't remember if I've shared this one with you all before or not. I don't think so. But when I was a kid, maybe seven or eight, somewhere around that age, uh, I used to pretend up in my room that I was running a radio station. I had a little tape deck. I had my little stacks of tapes. You know, these were cassette tapes. I would play songs. I would do a little bit of talking between the songs. I would yammer on for a while. So yeah, I used to pretend that I was running a radio station. So thanks to all of you for listening and helping me continue to pretend that I run a radio station. I'm just basically continuing that, uh, continuing that childhood tradition. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I really enjoy doing this podcast and I really appreciate all of your support. Uh, all of your listening and all of your subscribing and downloading and reviewing. So thank you and take care. We will talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.